Well, we've seen over the past few weeks how the, the church has been growing. It's developed because the spirit of the risen Jesus has come to the believers. Amazing teaching, amazing signs and wonders have taken place. Large numbers of people are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. The Christian community is learning what it means to be genuine followers of Jesus. And people have been appointed to positions of leadership to help the gospel to be proclaimed, as well as practical and pastoral needs to be met. So tonight we're going to hear about one of the deacons who was appointed a man named Stephen. And we're reading from two parts of chapter 6 and 7. We'll start with Acts chapter 6 from verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs God, Moses, handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now let's turn over to Acts chapter 7. Stephen is asked by the high priest if the charges against him are true and he begins talking about the history of God's people from the Old Testament. We'll pick up what he's saying in verse 44. Stephen said, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. And it remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law 
the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he'd said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to be here with you. If we haven't met, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and I'd like to add my welcome to that you've already received. Happy Father's Day to the fathers out there. I uh, thought we might start with a Father's Day joke. Uh, this is one of my favourite passages as a former physio, you stiff-necked people. Um, somebody was telling me this morning that maybe I should be talking about Moses as the most techno technologically advanced uh, leader of God's people. He downloaded the Ten Commandments from the cloud to the, his tablet uh, but we won't go there today. Um, <laughs> something, <laughs> something that I am excited about is that we said a couple of weeks ago um, that we're going to take a team with us over to Thailand to do a short-term mission. Um, we're going to go back to the place where Christy and I worked. Uh, we're going to go down and visit Jit and Jan and hopefully get up to the border uh, where Jonah uh, knows a whole bunch of people that are working with the Karen over there. Uh, so if that's something that does interest you, then that's a serious request. Um, do come and talk to me afterwards because we'd like to nail down some timings that people are available. We're planning to go over probably for about 10 days so if that interests you the other thing that's super exciting is the world championships are on here very very soon uh, and some people might think ah oh, that's just ken going on about his thing again but if the if the the closing down of wollongong for a bunch of lycra clad cyclists doesn't excite you and it's just a horrible thought that what are, what are they doing to us? It's a great gospel opportunity, believe it or not. Um, there's a group of churches that have gotten together and they've actually written a tract specifically for the event. And so Seacliff, Seacliff Bridge is on the front cover of it. It's got a little story that explains what Jesus has done for us through the story of cycling. Uh, and if that intrigues you, then this Thursday evening here at 7.30 till 9 o'clock, they're going to do some evangelism training on how you can use that tract to go along and watch the bike race and tell somebody about Jesus. So 7.30 to 9 o'clock here, Thursday night. Um, the following Thursday night, they're going to do it up closer to town and they're going to go out and actually do some live practice with real people. Um, and then you get to do it for the week as you're watching the, uh, well, as I'm watching the bike races. <laughs> now, 
if if you're not excited by those things, then hopefully God's word does excite you. And as we've been thinking about over the last number of weeks, Acts has started exceptionally well for the church. Whether there's external threats or internal division, the church has responded perfectly each and every time. They haven't put a single foot wrong. As opposition has increased, it's ramped up and up and up, boldness has grown to meet it and even surpass it. The Holy Spirit seems to be empowering the church for victory after victory after victory. But how long can their unbeaten record continue? Will Jesus, being in control of all things, mean that they'll just always keep on winning? Well, let's pray and think about this passage and what it means for us. Sovereign Lord Jesus, your ways are higher than our ways. We don't pretend to understand all the things that happen in our own lives, let alone the lives of those around us. We know in our heads that you are in control of all things. And yet when things get tough, when things don't go the way that we want them to, we often doubt it. As we reflect on your word in the book of Acts tonight, would you please deepen our understanding of you that we might live for you? Amen. History is written by the victors. It's a quote often attributed to Sir Winston Churchill. Ironically, no one knows for sure who actually first said it. Whatever its limitations... What the quote helpfully highlights is that history is not simply the unbiased record of events that took place. History is always written, remembered, and retold from the author's perspective. Now, ideally, all, his, all historians will acknowledge their own limitations and biases. They'll learn from new discoveries and others whose conclusions differ from their own. But historical revisionism, fake news and propaganda so that unfortunately history can be used, can be manipulated to push people's agendas. Hindsight might make some things clearer, but in the moment as history is being written, it's not always obvious who is actually right. When old beliefs or understandings are challenged, Will we stick with the status quo of accepted wisdom, what everyone knows is right? Or by doing so, does that mean that we'll actually potentially miss out on a shift that could actually save our lives? At stake in tonight's passage was a challenge to the existing wisdom of the time. I've called it simply Stephen's History Lesson. We're going to look at what triggered Stephen's history lesson. We'll look at the lesson itself in two parts and then think about the response of the Sanhedrin before considering our own response. So that's right, five points. Trigger for the lesson, the patriarchs and Joseph, Moses and the temple, the response of the Sanhedrin, and then our own response. Now, at the outset, I need to acknowledge that we are going to pass over very significant often quite intricate details. There are a lot of verses in our passage, many which we have not and will not even read tonight. And so can I encourage you, don't take my word for it. 
go home afterwards and reread the whole passage and check if the things that I say actually make sense of the whole text. I hope that you will find, as you read the other verses, that they actually even confirm further what I'll say. But please feel free to push back if you think there's a better explanation, something that holds these verses together better. I would love to talk with you further about any any points that you'd like to uh, talk further on. But as I've taken it, point one, the trigger for Stephen's history lesson. Now, as Steve said, we first got introduced to Stephen back in chapter 6, verse 5, one of the deacons chosen to oversee the distribution of food for Christian widows. But if we mistakenly thought that admin was a lower position, verse 8 makes very clear that is not the case. It is his role as deacon that leads to opportunities for Stephen to perform great wonders and signs among the people. Something that up until this point in the book of Acts has only been done by Jesus and the apostles. Now a deacon's doing it. As was the case when Jesus and the apostles performed wonders and signs, Stephen's performing of wonders and signs triggers opposition. Jews from far-flung countries began to argue with Stephen. It says that they were members of the synagogue of freedmen, a point of pride that they, or their forefathers, had been released from slavery and were now free. Not the slavery of Egypt, it was a more recent slavery, probably to do with fleeing the Babylonians. But because Stephen is given wisdom by the Holy Spirit, these supposedly freedmen are unable to defeat Stephen in logical debate. Rather than admit defeat, admit that their conclusions are incorrect and Stephen's are correct, they twist Stephen's words so that he'll be arrested. And their plan works. Just as Jesus was accused of speaking against the temple, Stephen ends up in front of the Sanhedrin on very similar charges. History is being repeated. Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asks him, chapter 6, verse 1, are these charges true? To which I think the natural response would be answering, no, they're not. I never said that Jesus was going to destroy the temple. There's nothing in the text that says Stephen actually ever said that. But Stephen sees this not as an opportunity simply to clear his own name, but to clarify something that is much, much more important. And so he starts his history lesson with the patriarchs, our point two. It's fairly common to argue that Stephen's answer is an attempt to persuade the judges that the charges are wrong by showing from Israel's history that he and they have a lot in common. According to that theory, he starts here, chapter 7, verse 2, with Abraham because both him, the accused, and his accusers or judges share the same view of history, that Abraham can be considered the start of the people of Israel. But I'm not convinced anymore that that's what Stephen is actually doing. Stephen could have chosen to emphasise any part of Abraham's life, the blessing that he received, the childlessness that he and Sarah faced, the, the time he almost sacrificed his son, but instead, his focus is solely restricted 
to the difficulties that Abraham faced and the opposition that resulted from his obedience to God. If we ask, why does Stephen pick and choose the things that he does? What becomes clear is that from the very outset of his answer, he's highlighting the mistreatment that God's chosen ones receive is not unusual at all. Historically, it is what has always taken place. The history of Isaac and Jacob, the other two patriarchs of Israel, is jumped over almost without comment, resuming the lesson with the same emphasis in Joseph's story. Joseph's brothers are jealous of him, leading to his enslavement. And again, God sides with the oppressed and mistreated, raising Joseph up to a position of power. And Joseph uses that power not for his own benefit, but to relieve the suffering of his family and others. Yet despite all the good that he does, a wicked ruler attacks the one who is chosen by and obedient to God. When we slow down and take careful notice of what Stephen picks and chooses from the much more detailed history, which is recorded in the book of Genesis, it becomes very clear that he's presenting parallels to his own story, his own situation. As God spoke to Abraham, so God spoke to the early church. Jesus has told them to be his witnesses. And just like Abraham, when the church obeys Jesus' command, it has led to trouble rather than smooth sailing. The assumption that obeying God results in a smooth path is clearly not supported by history. And yet despite the opposition that's motivated by jealousy, followers of Jesus have continued to obey God by serving their extended family who are in need, just as Joseph had done all of those centuries before. And again, this has led to persecution by wicked rulers. While it's not yet an all-out open attack, Stephen is not emphasising the similarities of their views. He's showing the Sanhedrin that they are on the wrong side of history. It is the followers of Jesus who are walking in the footsteps of the patriarchs, the ones who are on the right side of history. So Stephen then turns to Moses in the temple, our point three. Again, we need to keep in mind that, that while Stephen is recounting history, giving a history lesson, he's doing so in order to answer the accusation that he's spoken blasphemous words against Moses by suggesting that Jesus will change the customs that Moses has handed down to us. So he begins his account of history, the history of Moses, by describing Moses as no ordinary child. When Moses grew up, he was powerful in speech and action, verse 22. An incredibly surprising description, given Moses' own insistence at the time that he couldn't speak well. That's why he couldn't go. Moses' initial attempt to side with and rescue God's people is a terrible failure. Though he tries to rescue a fellow Jew, the Jew pushes him away with threats. And yet, despite the rejection by his own people, God appears to Moses in the burning bush and, and sends him back to Egypt to set all of his people free. The rejected one returns as ruler and judge, sent by God himself. 
Moses leads Israel to freedom, performing wonders and signs. And Moses received living words to pass on to us. Now, history famously records that the Ten Commandments were inscribed on stone tablets, an iconic symbol of permanence, of not changing. But as any living thing continues to grow, to move onwards to maturity, so the words of Moses were not just inscribed on stone, they were living. Stephen wasn't speaking against Moses. He wasn't saying bad or blasphemous things. He was explaining what had always been present in the law, just not fully understood, not yet fully mature. Stephen wasn't anti-law. He just wanted everybody to understand the law as it now could be better understood since the coming of the prophet that Moses had prophesied, the coming of Jesus. Now again, the parallels that Jesus and the church exhibit to Moses are there for those who know their history. Jesus also has an unusual birth. And when he, when grown up, he's described in exactly the same words that were used to describe Moses. That is also a precise description of what the apostles have been doing. Jesus offers to rescue his people, but is rejected by them. History repeats itself yet again when the church says that freedom is found in Jesus and they push that away, claiming it to be blasphemy. And yet despite the people's rejection of the message of freedom, Jesus is coming back, sent by God as ruler and judge. As Moses did in Egypt, Jesus likewise performed wonders and signs. And it is the apostles and more immediately Stephen's performing of wonders and signs that have triggered this very court case. History understood correctly insists that Jesus is the only one who brings true freedom. There is so much evidence that if you are denying it, you're on the wrong side of history. When we see what Stephen is actually doing, it becomes pretty surprising that he's allowed to keep on speaking. Whether the Sanhedrin is missing his implicit rebukes or or they're giving Stephen enough rope to hang himself is not clear at this point. But Stephen's point is that for there to be progress and development was not a rejection of Moses and the law, but the fulfilment of it, the very thing that Moses himself had prophesied would take place. And yet despite how Israel should have responded, should have obeyed, the conclusion is drawn that our ancestors refused to obey him. Verse 39. The Israelites chose Egypt over the promised land, told Aaron what to do rather than listen to the God-appointed Moses. They chose idols rather than Yahweh and sacrificed to man-made objects rather than to the one true God. All of this was crystal clear from their history. Amos chapter 5, 25 to 27, is quoted as the prophetic summary of Israel's history that repeated itself over and over. Because God's people had worshipped false gods, they were sent into exile far from him. Even the Sanhedrin would accept that this was an accurate summary of their history. But Stephen isn't just recounting history. 
he's zeroing in on the lesson that he wants to make from history. This disobedient nation of Israel, who had the law given to them by by Moses, were graciously also given the tabernacle and much later the temple built by Solomon. Stephen agreed that the tabernacle and the temple were incredibly important, but he disagreed that they were ever intended to be permanent. Even at the time, these two different structures representing God dwelling with his people were dedicated, it was acknowledged then that no building could house God. If even the heavens God had made are too small, too insignificant to be his house, what could we possibly make that would be fit for that purpose? Stephen is standing in front of them, accused with claims that he's been teaching that Jesus is going to destroy the temple. But the history of the temple, understood correctly, insisted that it was only ever for a limited time. Now, some would argue that Stephen is guilty here of historical revisionism, as we call it today, reinterpreting history to back up his agenda. But what he's actually doing is taking into account all of the evidence that's now there. And in chapter 7, verses 51 to 53, he goes for the jugular. Have a look, 7.51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. I still remember many decades ago my soccer coach saying that the best form of defence is attack. Well, Stephen on trial has certainly taken that idea to heart. The one who stands accused becomes the bold accuser. Not very conciliatory, is it? And yet, we've got to understand that this is exactly where Stephen planned to get to when he started back in what we call verse 2. Brothers and fathers. This is how our people have, have always disobeyed. Do not continue in that sin, I beg you. Don't remain on the wrong side of history that that ends in exile and separation from God. Come, join those who are following Jesus, the one who brings freedom. The deacon and historian, in the end, is an evangelist, which triggers the response, our point four. The Sanhedrin is, understandably, furious. They gnash their teeth. They have been pushed almost beyond what they can handle, barely able to contain the the rage that's bubbling up within them. And rather than back off, Stephen ratchets it up even further. Not because he's being intentionally antagonistic, wanting to rile them up, but led by the Holy Spirit, he says what he says. He looks up to heaven, sees the glory of God, which he spoke about way back in verse 2, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he lets the Sanhedrin know what he has seen. 
Verse 56, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Sanhedrin can't take this blasphemy any longer. The dam breaks, unwilling to to allow another vile word to enter their ears. They block their ears and, and yelling at the top of their voices, they charge at him, dragging him away and begin to stone him. Very dignified for the highest court in the land, isn't it? It was the final act that they had held themselves back from in the case of Jesus, submitting to the Roman restrictions that were on them about the death penalty. They weren't allowed to do this. But their anger overrides any legal niceties this time. And as the rocks begin to slam into Stephen's defenceless body, the leaders lay their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Just as Barnabas had been introduced earlier, this young man, Saul, is going to become incredibly important to the story. But the text doesn't dwell on him. It returns our attention to Stephen. And emulating the prayer that his saviour prayed from the cross, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now Jesus had prayed from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A deliberate quoting of Psalm 31 verse 5. As Stephen is being executed for supposed blasphemy, he makes it clear with almost his final words that Jesus is God. No matter how much the Sanhedrin might hate this claim, he will not turn back from what he has come to know and understand and love. And falling to his knees, as his body continued to be smashed by the rocks, his final words are again the the slightly modified words that Jesus had prayed. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. His final words spoke and he fell asleep. An ironic understatement, perhaps? They echo Jesus' own description of Lazarus in John chapter 11, verse 11, that will become Paul's frequently used words to describe the death of Christians. We might pass over them thinking that they're simply Christian jargon that attempts to soften the harsh reality of death, similar to how many will talk of somebody passing away. But given how carefully Luke chooses his words, is it actually there as a profound theological truth, a deliberately chosen word, not to soften the sting of death, but to stand there and defy it, that insists that Stephen hasn't died if that means that life has ended and and there's nothing left of Stephen but a broken body on the ground. Rather, sleep means that that doesn't end the person's existence. Stephen is more alive now than he's ever been. He's just asleep from our perspective. Now, I agree you have to be looking very carefully to see the end of this chapter as a positive because unlike the other times the apostles appeared before the Sanhedrin, this time it doesn't explicitly end with a Sanhedrin who's unsure of how to act, how to, how to discipline this group of rebels. There's no release from prison with warnings or even floggings. And no great numbers of men and women 
are recorded as being added to their number. Jesus hasn't come to the rescue this time, but rather he's watched on as one of his faithful witnesses, faithful martyrs, becomes the first martyr as we use the originally Greek term. Stephen's martyrdom is a clear indicator that persecution has now ramped up to the point where it is deadly, that the religious leaders are determined to stamp out this Jesus movement and will not hold anything back. So will this martyr's death achieve anything, or has Stephen died in vain? Well, you'll have to come back next week to hear the answer to that question, which leaves us to consider the final point. Point five, what about our response? We've looked at what the Sanhedrin does, but what are we supposed to do? We might shake our heads at the Sanhedrin, disgusted, at their religious extremism that welled up and was vented in deadly violence. And it is appropriate to both abhor and to avoid the inappropriate hard-heartedness that led to such actions, or even possibly its gentler expressions such as criticism of alternate views on social media. Love for God should never be expressed as hatred for others even those that disagree with us or or mock what we believe. But given that we are not Jewish, and it's very unlikely that we'll have to appear in court on charges of speaking against Moses, are there positive lessons here for us too? I think probably the most obvious one in our politically correct society is that we might ponder if Stephen should have perhaps toned down his response a little. When he saw the Sanhedrin getting hot under the collar, why didn't he back off? Why did he keep pushing them, knowing that the things that he was going to say were going to provoke them to the point that they would kill him? Is this actually a biblical example warning us against speaking so dogmatically? Taking our disapproval, our right disapproval of the Sanhedrin's closed-mindedness one step further, should we go so far as to say that any fighting for our own opinion is misguided and we should just all agree to just let each person hold to whatever truth they want to hold to? The religion is a private affair and should be securely hidden away out of the public eye. Well, that kind of suggestion clearly suits our enlightened society, but I'm firmly convinced that this passage points us in exactly the opposite direction. As I've noted throughout, and if you go home and do that homework of reading, I hope you'll find there is an explicit and repeated approval of Stephen's words. He's not driven by his own beliefs. He's not attempting to to prove that he is right and they are wrong. His history lesson and the way that he presents it is Holy Spirit inspired. So if anything, what we learn is that the bold proclamation of the gospel sometimes is offensive and it can provoke strong, even deadly opposition. And yet, we are not to shrink back not even if it means our death. Pastor Rod shared the example last week of the North Korean family that stood firmly on their conviction that Jesus was the one who provides freedom. 
Bishop Polycarp is perhaps the most famous example from history outside of Stephen. Facing death for refusing to worship the Roman emperor, he rebuked his accusers, speaking of Jesus this way, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And with those words, he was burnt at the stake. But I don't want us to go away thinking that it's just those massive moments in history where it's life and death. Some friends of mine who are missionaries in Southeast Asia wrote just a week ago of a lady who has just recently become a Christian in the village where they're translating the Bible. May is her name, had become extremely sick, and eventually she gave in to the encouragement of those around her to go to the local witch doctor to provide the healing that she needed. My friend wrote in a newsletter, I worry about her faith, if she ever had faith. Isn't it basic to our faith that we would choose to die rather than to abandon Jesus? Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death is the right answer. As I read his newsletter, their newsletter, it seems so radical, so extreme, an impossible demand. This is a lady who's just a baby Christian and she's already facing a harder trial than many of us will ever face. She doesn't yet have a Bible in her own language. There is no local church, no mature Christians anywhere nearby that could encourage her and pray with her. She hasn't read of Polycarp or Stephen and yet she has already been asked to choose sides when she faces this severe illness, which very possibly could have led to her death. How much more so for us who live here in Wollongong? We have access to the Bible, to stories of those who have trusted in the face of opposition and even death. We've had the chance to grow up in our faith, without facing life and death choices like these. How can we ensure that we're on the right side of history? I think that all of these blessings that we've received are incredibly important and, and we need to be thankful to God for them. But in the end, there is only one thing that is needed and that's what Stephen was given as he faced his death a clear picture of who Jesus is, what he, who he is and what he has done. Only that clear vision of Jesus will enable us to be bold in our witness as friends mock us or even reject us outright, as the Holy Spirit prompts us to say something, to, to do something for a stranger that reveals his love for them even to stand with Jesus unto death, if that's what he asks of us. Give us a clear vision of you, Lord Jesus, that we will boldly stand whatever may come. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us in all of your glory and majesty. That we wouldn't think of you just as an amazing teacher, as a wonder worker, as someone who is able to perform miracles. But you are God, creator, redeemer, the one who is in control of all things. Please lift up our eyes so that we might see you clearly, that we would be enabled to understand how to live boldly for you in word and deed, so that your kingdom would continue to grow, that more and more would come to put their trust in you as Saviour. We ask this for your glory. Amen.